as we start by looking to our Lord now in prayer. And so, Father, the book of Job is about a man who has experienced incredible loss. And I always assume with multiple services that there are going to be countless people who have experienced varying degrees of loss. There's holes in their lives. There might have been a a loved one or someone or something that was a natural fit that filled that hole. And now that someone or something is no longer there. You're infinite. You are eternal. You are unchangeable. Take now that infinite, eternal, unchangeable wisdom that is rooted in who you are. We're praying now through the study of your word, it will be applied to our needs. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book, Experiencing Grief, Norman Wright um, gives us an understanding regarding the word pictures that are oftentimes used when one is trying to explain what they are experiencing. You ever try to do that? He writes, a grieving father said, grief is like a wave. It comes rolling in from a far-off place. I could no more push it back than if I were standing in the water at the beach. I could not fight the wave. It moved over me and under me and broke against me. But I could never stop it. It yielded to my presence, and in so yielding arrived at its destiny destination. It worked around me, and the harder I fought it, the more exhausted I became. And so it is with grief. If I tried to fight it, it would vanquish me. If I pushed it down, it would stick in my soul and emerge as something else. Depression, bitterness, exhaustion, If I yielded to the waves and let it carry me, however, it would take me to a new place. And so this gifted counselor, Dr. Wright, goes on to say, and and so it is with grief. It takes you to the tops of the waves, and then they break, and you struggle in the froth of the emotion. Now, these waves of verbal expressions of emotion have hit the shore where Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar stand. In chapter 3, what Job is trying to do is to match words to feelings. You ever try to do that? And oftentimes find that your feelings can't find a, 
a, a connecting point to words. The words simply don't match the feeling. So you use a phrase, what's well, like this, or it's as that. But there is a, not a natural connection between the feeling and the word. It's fascinating to me that throughout the book of Job, the little word as and the word like is used repetitively. So what I want to do with you now is to do what Dr. Wright, who had been a professor part-time at Trinity, does, is to explore this whole matter of grief, let it unfold for us. And what we're going to do now is to position ourselves so that we are asking, okay, if I am counseling, what should I be doing? What should I be looking for? But if you are seeking counsel, what should I be doing? What should I be looking for? And so if uh, I'm true to form, I'm second service is like first service, I'm not going to get through all this. But uh, we'll give it a shot, okay? And so what I want to do with you now is to draw out a number of evaluations based upon whether you are counseling or you're seeking counsel on how to stay true to God's word. And the first comes out of verses 1 down through verse 6, and we're going to put it like this, that whether providing counsel or seeking counsel, evaluate first of all the initiative being taken. I want you to notice now that Eliphaz has come a very long way to provide comfort and to provide counsel to Job. Job is known as the greatest in the East, and so this is no small undertaking to be able to minister to counsel somebody of this nature, the stature of Job. But now Eliphaz, who's the oldest now of this contingent who's arrived on the scene, speaks up. And notice now his approach. Ask yourself, if you are a counselor, what should be my approach? And one size does not fit all. No blended worship, no blended counsel, no blended teaching, no blended personalities. You've got to find a way to tailor. And so now Eliphaz the Temanite answers, and he says he gets this going with two significant questions. If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Now ask yourself, why does he ask that question? Is it because Eliphaz is impatient with Job's impatience? What prompts this? When you're evaluating and trying to determine where you will go for counsel, you're going to have to be able to set up a series of tests to be able to evaluate whether or not is that is the counselor who is best suited to meet the needs of the hour. Maybe for your, your student at home, maybe for a loved one, maybe for a co-worker. So you ask yourself now, and why and what is it that has prompted Eliphaz at this point to ask that word? Because Job in chapter 3 has been very passionate about everything he's expressing. But now a second question leaps at us again. Yet who can keep from speaking? It's as if the three friends have come all this ways not to merely listen. 
And they want an opportunity to weigh in. But notice now, he starts with these questions and shifts them from Job to them. When you're counseling, ask yourself, why am I asking what I'm asking? If you're being counseled, what's the purpose of the question? You're asking questions about the questions. This is wise. At this point, then, the counselor is going to have to do what Eliphaz is about to do, what I typically say, choose your on-ramp. Which on-ramp are you going to choose to get onto the highway of life's conversations so that you can quickly get involved in the traffic flow of words and thoughts? And so now Eliphaz, he's waited, hopefully patiently, but we've got to ask ourselves, is he impatient about Job's impatience? Notice his approach. Notice his starting point. He utilizes two questions to get this whole thing going. And then in verse 3, uses a visual word in the context of a verbal process. Behold. Look. That's a visual word, isn't it? Behold. What we want to do, though, is to move from eyesight to insight. If you're going to minister effectively as a counselor, make certain you move beyond observation. That's surface level. Get beneath the surface. Go from eyesight to insight. Behold. Now, he's, he knows something about Job. He's got the medical history on the man, you see. You've instructed many, which means then that people have obviously been blessed by Job's insights. The question is, will the insightful one be open to the insights of the others? You've strengthened the hands, the weak hands. And then in verse 4, because this is the highway of words, your words have upheld him who was stumbling. So he's going to use words to first of all acknowledge Job's words. Job has a history of effective use of words. You've made firm the feeble knees. And then it comes at you. Always be relevant in your counsel and always try to determine when you are seeking counsel how relevant this is. Now he says, but now. That's good. He doesn't start off with, well, back then, in my day. No, he's got us up now to where we need to be. He's being relevant. If you're seeking counsel, you're going to have to ask somewhere along the way, is this man, is this woman living in past tense realities? Or is this person connected with where things are at, life is at, I'm at, at this moment in time? Eliphaz has got a button now which ought to raise the eyebrows of, the, of Job. But now, it's come to you. You've counseled others who are hurting. Job, now you're hurting. And then he makes this statement. Isn't this interesting? And you are impatient. 
draw a line back to verse 2 where he began his questioning with, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? And now what he has done at this point is that he has made a statement about Job, you are impatient. Is that accurate? Or is that inaccurate? Is he simply projecting himself on Job, which some counselors do? Or has he objectively evaluated where Job is at in the present tense of life? Don't project yourself on others. Evaluate, is this where he is, is this where she is at at this moment? It touches you. You're dismayed. He doesn't ask if you dismay. But he's off to another question in verse 6 because he wraps, you see, 1 through 6 in his on-ramp experience of getting into the traffic flow of counsel with this next one. And it comes out this way, is not your fear of God your confidence? And what struck me when I was studying this passage in the original language in the Hebrew is that the term for God is not found there. It's implied, not found. And really what fascinates us, again, is that in the dialogue that Job has, beginning in verse 4 onwards, the term for God, the covenantal name, Lord Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D in English, Yahweh in Hebrew, is missing, it's absent. That's the relational name for God. You've heard me say it's the covenantal name for God. But now it seems like not only the name for Yahweh is not found on Job's lips. It's not found on the counselor's lips. You see, what we're saying here is that these are religious counselors. But being religious doesn't mean you're saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I mean, my word, there was a religious conversation in the Garden of Eden when, when the evil one was posing religious questions to Eve. So now beware and ask questions of yourself when you are engaged in the counsel of one who is highly religious like the Eliphazes of this world. How do you evaluate what they're saying? Is it accurate? Is this inaccurate? The integrity of your ways, he goes on to say, your hope. So now what we need when we are counseling is a starting point. We need to be able to ask him, what's the approach? If you're being counseled, what has that person chosen as their on-ramp, and why did they choose what they chose to bring the button now into my personal experience? Why did they choose that as their starting point? Dr. William Osler chose a starting point. Osler, a gifted physician of another era, among the most highly esteemed physicians in modern medical history. I love the classic two-volume work on his life. It tells stories of his genius as a practitioner of medicine. But the man was graced with unusual compassion. Well, in one of the stories, we're told that on a particular day, he entered the pediatric ward of a London hospital, saw the children playing at one end of the room, 
And then his gaze was drawn to a small girl who sat off to one side, alone, alone on her bed, a doll in her arms. Aloneness, loneliness. So what do you do? Well, Dr. Osler headed to the nurse station, wise. That's where the stories of life can be, can be drawn out. And he finds out that this young girl's mother has passed away, and her father, who had only visited her once uh, in her illness, had likewise passed away, and the children had distanced themselves from her. All she's got is her doll. So now Osler was, this is, this is always his moment to shine, as you read in his biography. And so he immediately walked to the child's bed. May I sit down, please, he asked in a voice loud enough to care where the other children were able to hear it while they were at play. I can't stay long on this visit. But I have wanted to see you so badly, he said. Oh, that's good. But those describing the moment say that the girl's eyes became electric with joy. For several minutes, the physician talked with her, but now in quiet, almost secretive tones. He asked about her doll's health appeared to be carefully listening to its heart with his stethoscope. And then he asked about the doll's parents. And she told them they had passed away. As he rose to leave, his voice lifted again so that everybody at this point could now hear, and you won't forget our secret, will you? And don't tell anyone. And then we're told that as Osler left the room, he turned to see the once ignored child, now the center of attention of every other child on the ward. He figured his on-ramp. He determined where to begin. He got the story, he learned the history, he assessed the situation, made an appraisal, and then he found his on-ramp and entered in with a series of questions, noting that the one of value at that point was the doll in her arms, and began to value that by putting the stethoscope to the doll. Determine the value of the one-year counseling. Try to determine what is it that that person clings to. They're making a statement, you know. Now, once you've made that first assessment, that first evaluation of counsel, whether providing counsel or seeking counsel, now I want you to join with me now. Now we're on the highway and we're ready for the second evaluation, that whether, whether providing counsel or seeking counsel, secondly now, evaluate the views being offered. We started with the initiative being taken. He figured out where to begin. But now notice with me the views being offered, and we're going to have to assess, is the counselor on or off 
biblical, unbiblical, maybe a combination of the two. That's hard. He's religious. It's obvious. But is he biblical? So now, Elphaz, he's got us up to verse 7 and says, Now remember, that means now we're going to dip in to something of the past and relate it to the present. Remember, form of a question. He's still utilizing questions. Who that was innocent ever perished? Oh, man, is that interesting. Why did he ask that? And then he couples it with the next one. Or where were the upright cut off? Where's that heading? Where's that leading us to? Well, you and I have got to bear in mind that in that particular time, there was in essence one formula for interpreting the reasons for suffering and pain in this world. The suffering is based upon sin. Job, you are suffering. Therefore, Job, you must have sinned. And furthermore, Job, you are suffering badly. Therefore, you must have sinned grossly. But what I want to say to you is that your predetermined assumptions, untested, can lead to wrong conclusions. Assumptions point us towards conclusions. But what if the assumption is wrong? So now notice the question and ask yourself, why is he asking what he's asking? I'm only asking, you see. Remember who that was innocent ever perished. He's, he's alluding to Job. It's family at this point. They must not have been innocent. Or where were the upright cut off? They must not have been upright. Now, hang on to that because he's going to continue to move forward, you see, with his assessment. Because now he's going to bring his observational skills to the forefront. As I have seen, he says, Notice the use of the word seen. He had previously used the word behold. He's a very visually oriented counselor. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Hit the pause button. What he's implying at this point as he moves from the general principle to the particular individual is that uh, Job, you must have plowed iniquity. Job, you must have sown trouble. But the problem with this is that you and I are aware of chapters 1 and 2. Where the reason why Job is suffering is not because of the fact that he's committed a sin, but rather because in God's estimation he's blameless to the degree in which he can point to Satan and say, there's example A of what I'm talking about, being faithful to God. Oh, he's sinful, yes, but he's blameless. What the book of Job is going to do for us is to begin to expand our understanding of the relationship of, of suffering to the causes of this world 
that there's another reason, and there are at least eight reasons in the, in the Bible as to why people suffer. But another reason is that there was something cosmic happening that you and I are privy to in chapters 1 and 2, that God singled out Job not because of what he's done against God, but rather because of how he lived for God. And that's why Job's suffering. And Eliphaz doesn't know that. But Job finds that his counselors made a wrong assumption, which will lead to a wrong conclusion. And furthermore, because of his assumption, he will make poor application. He's going to apply this to Job. You know the maxims, Job. Those who plow iniquity, sow trouble, reap the same. I can almost sense Job in his heart saying, but I haven't sown anything like that. And now Job's confused because this is an esteemed counselor saying these things in the form of a question. You ever question the questioner? This takes wisdom, you know. But he's not done, this uh, counselor. He goes on to say, by the breath of God. Now he's talking about God. But so did Satan in the Garden of Eden. You see, that's not good enough. And furthermore, the term he uses at this point for the sovereign one is not Lord, not Yahweh. It's more of a generic name for God. A lot of people can talk about God. But a personal dynamic relationship with God, with as you and I know it, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, that where we find our sins forgiven. He's very much into a judicial God. Retribution. God, God allows people to suffer because people have done something wrong. This is the assumption about Job. But this man needs to expand his formula. There are more reasons to suffering than that. By the breath of God, they perish. He's got a judicial view of God, but what about a merciful view of God? Ask yourself, does the counselor have an adequate understanding of the comprehensive nature of God, or are they reductionists? They reduce God to just one attribute. In his case, a judicial God, but not a gracious God, not a loving God, that kind of thing. You need an infinite, eternal, unchangeable God in his being. There's wisdom and power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I'm quoting the Westminster Confession of Faith at this point. But he's reduced God to just one way of, of relating to sufferers. By the breath of God they perish. By the blast of his anger they are consumed. Now, what I want you to notice is that there are roughly 370 figures of speech in the book of Job. I find that both the sufferer as well as the counselor, when they resort to figures of speech, you and I have got to take a step back and ask, and why did they choose that figure of speech? There's a reason here. Well, at this point, notice that he, 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 he uses the animal imagery. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey. The cubs of the lioness are scattered. What is he doing at this point? At this point, Eliphaz is comparing Job and his wife to a lion and a lioness. Whose teeth have been knocked out. The cubs have been scattered. 
As O. Palmer Robertson puts it, once powerful Job is now as unthreatening as a toothless lion who must perish from a lack of prey. Having lost her children, his wife is like a lioness without her cubs. And I'm sure Job is saying, this isn't me. Toothless lion? But then you and I are reminded in the wisdom books of your Old Testament, like apples of gold and settings of silver, is a word spoken in right circumstances. Counselors need to understand that. One of the gifted counselors, Dr. Paul Tournier, I've got about 10 of his volumes. Some great quotes from one of his volumes. Listen to all the conversations of our world between nations as well as between individuals. They are, for the most part, dialogues of the deaf. And another. It's quite clear that between love and understanding, there is a very close link. He who loves understands. He who understands loves. One who feels understood feels loved. And one who feels loved feels sure of being understood. At this point, Job doesn't feel as though they understand. There is misapplication. Now again, in counseling, there needs to be understood the connection between assumption and application. When an assumption is being made and an application is being drawn, what if it's a wrong assumption? If it's a wrong assumption, it's going to lead to the wrong application. Job's going to say, in essence, you got the wrong guy. I didn't do this. So why are you counseling me this way? I want us to be wise as a congregation in a very counseling-oriented culture. Thus far, you've evaluated the initiative being taken in 1 through 6. Second of all, you and I are evaluating the views being offered, the assumptions that are related to the, uh, the applications. But he's saying, don't apply this to me. I'm not the toothless lion. The as I've seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same, but I'm, I'm going through my life and I can't figure out where I sowed to reap this kind of experience. Ever been there? Man. Ready for the third? Now you see why I didn't get up to six. Here's the third. The whether providing counsel or seeking counsel, thoroughly evaluate with me the experiences being highlighted. And this man has got some kind of mystical experience he's about to unload on us. Check it out, starting with verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. Is that how God works? My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from the visions of the night. He had a vision when deep sleeps fall on men. Uh, dread came upon me and trembling which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. 
He's having some kind of religious experience. This is some kind of spiritual encounter. The hair on my flesh stood up, stood still. And then mark this, I could not discern its appearance. In other words, he can't, he can't discern the source of his experience. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice, visual and verbal combining. But you see, when you are talking to someone who is drawn towards the mystics of life, who are drawn towards spirituality, there is not necessarily a direct correspondence between spirituality and Christianity. There are false spiritualities as well as true spiritualities. Can you discern the difference? So that if you go to a counselor and you're seeking input, it's not enough to get spiritual advice. Is it truly biblical guidance that's being provided? Well, no. What you really have to do is to ask, what is the source of this person's experience? What is the source that has allowed this person, who is so highlighting his experience, to, to even speak of this? So now, when the person is talking about his, his religious moments, his encounters, his experiences with God, make certain that this is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. We're talking about here. Be able to distinguish between the true and the false. Don't allow for the mingling of the two. And now comes the question based upon the experience that Eliphaz poses. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Which is what Luther grappled with. Till he came to the biblical conclusion that one is declared righteous, justified on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation. He's posing the question. My concern is he's not providing the answer. But he comes at it again with another question. He's obviously a creationist in his worldview. Can a man be pure before his maker? But my word, even Islam holds to a, a, a strong creational view of things. But the question is, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is are we dealing with a covenantal relational God here when what is being offered is spiritual guidance? And how does one parlay their experience into something that is of significance of drawing a person toward God rather than from or away from God? One of my favorite generals during the Civil War, Oliver Howard, in his biography, I love biographies, tells of an incident in his own life, a reason of showing what great results sometimes come from little efforts. It's the Battle of Fair Oaks. It's June 1st, 1862. And this strong Christian man, General Howard's arm is shot off. Quote, as I was making my way to the hospital, the general said, weak from loss of blood, I am in excruciating pain. I see a young man intoxicated, a soldier. 
I try to draw him out. He's broken by the loss of life that has surrounded him. As I came near him, I stopped long enough to talk with him. And I encouraged him, don't escape the battles of life. Address them. I shared my testimony. I went on to the hospital, had my arm amputated, and was sent home to recover. I heard nothing more of this soldier until a short time ago, he wrote, when a letter from an officer in Washington told me his story, <coughs> his subsequent history. Quote, Impressed by the fact that in my wounded condition I had taken enough interest in him to stop and give him counsel, he resolved to stop drinking. He resolved to re-enter life. He settled down, worked hard, most importantly, pursued Christ. Gradually rose, and the letter from Washington told me he had become a judge on the supreme bench of the state of New Hampshire, one of the foremost men in the Commonwealth. People, some of the great counsel you can provide is when you have experienced loss. And you don't run from the battlefield of life. Howard loses his arm, heads to the hospital, provides the counsel, offers the credibility, and a life is impacted. A lot of us have experienced loss in various ways, shapes, or forms, and disappointments in life that we would have never wanted for ourselves. But rather than escaping reality, you invest your commitment to Jesus Christ in reality and watch the impact. Hey, we'll jump to one more, okay, for the sake of time. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Fourthly, whether providing counsel or seeking counsel with me, fourthly, evaluate what I'll call the application being made. Now, again, I talked about there are people who make assumptions about people. And their assumptions about people will lead to their application of well, this person is this, or this person should be doing that, or this person blew it over there. Maybe they see a child gone, gone astray, and therefore they assume something about parenting. So notice the assumption as it relates to the application. And notice the breakdown. Wrong assumptions lead to wrong applications. Chapter 5, verse 1. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones? And he's talking about his, his trio, you see, of ash heap friends standing there, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool. He's alluding to the fact now that Job's a fool. The fool says in his heart there is no God, you know. Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool. But now notice he uses the phrase, I have seen, once again. Didn't he use that in chapter 4, verse 8? Now he does it again in chapter 5, verse 3. In other words, this is a man of eyesight, and he assumes eyesight is insight. 
And I would say to you that eyesight can be used for insight, but they're not synonymous terms in counseling. And so I get emails weekly or else phone calls weekly or people weekly who are asking the question, where can I find a good counselor? My child's dealing with eating disorder or my co-worker is dealing with depression or my loved one's experienced loss. I want them to have the proper tools, and so I don't give them simply a list of names, generally speaking. Rather, I give them a series of tests, equip the saints to do the work of the ministry so they can figure out what's, what, which counselor is best for their life situation. So in verse 3, he says, I've seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. All kinds of cursing in the book of Job, and Job's adversary, Satan, wants Job to be the one doing it. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. There is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest. He takes it even out of thorns. The thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. And then almost as if he's now saying this directly to Job, a man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. There's trouble here, Job. Sparks are flying. Where do you go from here? We need a kind of life group that doesn't include the Eliphaz, Bildads, and Zilphars in our circles who don't make wrong assumptions and then lead us to wrong conclusions and people who make bad assumptions and then make poor applications, misplaced applications. And E. Stanley Jones, a great missionary, understood that, who wrote about a time earlier in his life He was in a difficult situation. And he needed people to pray. I went to the class meeting. I'm grateful that I didn't stay away. When you're hurting, you tend to want to isolate, you see, not integrate. So I went, but my spiritual music had gone. He's now using a figure of speech. I had hung my music on a weeping willow tree. Now, that's an interesting phrase, of all the trees. As the others spoke of their joys and victories of the week, I sat there with tears rolling down my cheeks. I was heartbroken, and the others had spoken. Now John, the class leader, said, Now, Stanley, tell us what's the matter. I told them, but I couldn't. I told them I couldn't, but would would they please pray for me? And like... One man, they fell to their knees, and they lifted me back to God by faith and love. And when I got up from my knees, and they got up from theirs, there was reconciliation. It was as if God opened his arms and took me in. The distance was gone. I took my musical instrument from the willow tree, and found my song again. Found your song? Hang with people who understand this. Make certain that we're not dealing with wrong assumptions that lead to bad applications, wrong assumptions that lead to false conclusions. 
be biblically wise, evaluate with the scriptures in mind, and seek God as we stand together. And so, Father, we're thanking you now for who you are, and we're thanking you for what you've done. We're thanking you for the wisdom that is found in your word and how you equip the saints to do the work of the ministry as the scriptures speak of. And so, Father, I pray now that we will take the various evaluation tools that are found here in chapters 4 and 5, and what will be shown on the website, and relate them, Father, not only to our lives, but we'll take these tests so as to equip ourselves to be able to counsel others effectively. All for your glory. So for the one who comes here today wounded, the person has lost their music, minister to their point of need, take them to the cross where the song has been sung and God has been honored. And for this we give you the praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.